The only child of David who receives more attention in the biblical record than Absalom is Solomon himself. Absalom enters the scriptural record in 2 Samuel 13, and his life and the rebellion which led, which he led, will actually dominate the record for the next eight chapters until 2 Samuel chapter 20. In fact, the rebellious act and the spirit that Absalom had, he unleashes this spirit and it's going to plague David and his house right into the reign of King Solomon himself. The story of Absalom is an epic tragedy. It's a story that provides great lessons and warnings for us today, brothers and sisters, as we'll see. And condensed within these eight chapters are examples of politics at its worst, and we think that politics today are messed up. It is a story of rivalry. It is a story of rape and lust and hatred and murder and rebellion and warfare. And that's within David's house. Well, in order to manage the scale of Absalom's life and times, we propose to look at it in uh, four sections, God willing. Well, in our first section, which we have entitled, The Son of Maacah, A House Divided, we want to look at David's family dynamic, as well as the events that were set in motion as a result of David's sin with Bathsheba. And we'll also get our inner initial introduction to Absalom, the son of a foreign princess. In our second session, The Stealing of Hearts, The Art of Rebellion, here we want to look at Absalom's character in a little bit more detail, his thinking and his plot to take the kingdom, resulting in the greatest threat that David ever faced towards his role as king. We'll also see how Absalom embarks on his mission to steal the hearts of the people. In the third session, the king's heart, wise and foolish sons, we'll look at what David saw in Absalom. What drew him to that boy? What caused him to overlook and even forgive the evil that he did? And what can then can we learn as brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers, about how we can help our family life uh, in the truth? And then finally, in the fourth section, God willing, we'll look at Absalom's place, the way of all men. We will look at the result of Absalom's revolt. We will consider what he was trying to achieve in this life and what his startling end can teach us today. Well, as we said, next to David and Joab, Absalom dominates the record in 2 Samuel. Uh, this is a word cloud, and this word cloud graphically takes the words out of 2 Samuel and shows us what the most prominent words are within the record. Absalom is a looming character in 2 Samuel. God wants us to learn something from the story of this man. Absalom was a son. He was greatly loved by David, as we know. In fact, he generated in David, his father, almost a blinding love. 
as we'll see. David was prepared to overlook his faults, even his outrageous actions for the love that he had towards this boy. He was also a man that was watched and admired and loved by many in Israel. He is described in the scriptures as a heart stealer, as he slowly and methodically plotted his takeover, his overthrow of his father to take the kingdom. This is the man we hope to get to know, brothers and sisters, over the next several weeks, God willing. What a towering character he is. A seemingly, today we would say, a perfect politician. An ideal king that any nation would love to have. Well, let's start at the beginning. The house of Saul begins to pass off the scene. And the kingdom of David begins. And we read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. So if you have your Bibles there, you can take a look at 2 Samuel 3, verses 1 to 5. And here we have the birth of David's sons that were born to him in Hebron. And we read in verse 1, Now there was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. And unto David were sons born in Hebron, and his firstborn was Amnon of Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and his second Chiliab of Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite, and the third Absalom the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggath. And the fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abitel. And the sixth, Ithrium, by Egla, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. These children, which we will call his Hebron children, were born during the seven and a half years that David began his rule from the city. All his other children would be born to him in Jerusalem, where he would reign for another 33 years. So David, beginning at the age of 33, will have six sons by six different wives while living in Hebron. And interestingly, they're not called queens. The title of queen doesn't happen until the reign of Solomon. They're just referred to uh, as his wives. In 1 Chronicles 3, verses 1 to 9, we have an additional record here with details about David's family. So in 1 Chronicles 3, it's again, when we notice though in 1 Chronicles 3 here, we're going to see, we're going to call these, the, the beginning, the first four verses really lay out the Hebron children. And we want to briefly look at this record as it's going to help us to have, perhaps understand Absalom a little bit better when we understand the tensions and the rivalries that come from this type of family setup that David had. And we think it's going to just give us a little bit more background to understanding uh, Absalom. 
So it's now recorded here in 1 Chronicles 3 about David's first wife. But from 1 Samuel 18 and 27, it's a good cross-reference to put in our marginal reference in Chronicles there. But 1 Samuel 18 and 27, we know that his first wife was Michael, Saul's daughter. Jewish rabbis actually think she's the, her name was changed to Eglah, um, but since Michael had no child with David, that really doesn't make sense. She would have brought bitterness and a lack of spirituality to David's household. We know that she was forcefully separated by David from her husband, Faltiel, a man that Saul had wrongly given to her after David had fled from Saul. And David would later bring Michael back to him after the death of Saul, and she would be childless for the rest of her life. We then see in the record of 1 Chronicles 3 that he has Ahinoam. Her name means my brother is delight, or brother of grace. And she bears David's first child. So she's his second wife. She bears him the first child, and they call that boy Amnon. And he becomes the heir apparent to the throne. Amnon names means faithful, but he wasn't. I'm sure David and Ahinoam had good intentions for the boy. But he turns out to be someone who picks bad friends, listens to bad advice, is a liar, and actually rapes his sister. Abigail, my father is joy, has David's second son, we read in the record, and his name is Chiliab. It means like his father or protected by the father. And you'll notice in a lot of the meanings of the names of David's children, the idea of father comes out. He might have had a second name. This is the boy that might have had the second name named Daniel, actually, in 1 Chronicles 3.1. So when you compare the records, the one has the name Chiliab, the other record has the name Daniel. It's felt he could have had another name. We're not sure what becomes of him as he passes off the scene. So it's possible that he might have died very young. And it seems that David married Abigail either shortly after he marries Ahinoam or very nearly at the same time, as it appears in the record. And then we have Meaka. Her name means oppression. And from her, David has his third son, Absalom and his sister Tamar, two very beautiful-looking people, we are told in the scriptures. Maacah is herself a king's daughter, making her a princess, and we'll have more to say about her in a minute. And then he marries Haggath, and her name means festive, and she bears David's fourth son, Adonijah. Yahweh is my Lord. And Adonijah grows up, with an eye on the throne. He's a plotting fellow, waiting for the right time to take the throne. And he's no fool, because in his rebellion, he even manages to rope in Joab and Abiathar the priest. And like Absalom, his half-brother, 
he too gets 50 men to run before him in 1 Kings 1 and verse 5. He might have thought, well, it worked for Absalom. Maybe it work, it'll work for me. When David is old and weak, it's Adonijah who then sees the right time to strike. And David has to rise up, we remember, and anoint Solomon, putting an end to Adonijah's blatant grab for the throne. Even more remarkable, in 1 Kings 2, verse 13, he tries again to take the throne. And this time he asks Bathsheba to get Solomon's permission so he can marry Abishag, who ministered to David while he was sick. Well, Solomon, being very wise, correctly saw this as Adonijah trying to gain ascendancy to the throne and had him executed for such a ridiculous request. This boy also badly wants the kingdom. And then David marries Abitel, my father is the dew. And she has David's fifth son, Shephatiah. And then he has Eglah, who gives birth to David's sixth son in Hebron. And that boy's name is Ithrium, abundance of the people or prophet of the people. Well, David's Jerusalem children are listed in 1 Chronicles 3 in the verse 5 to 9. So those are his children that are born in Jerusalem. We'll call them the Jerusalem children. David now reigns here for 33 years with all the sons from Hebron. And in Jerusalem, he has more children and he takes another wife. And we know he takes Bathsheba. Bathsheba means the daughter of sevens or the daughter of an oath. She's the daughter of Amiel or Eliam. And she has four children with David. She has his seventh child, a boy named Shimia, or in the record, Shama, means fame or renowned. She has his eighth son, Shobab, which means rebellious or falling away. Maybe they saw something in that son or reflected on their own lives. The ninth boy is Nathan. It means give or whom God gave. And then, of course, they have the tenth son, which is Solomon, which means peace or peaceable. So other sons also come along, and we're going to call them the nine. And he has the nine, and they are also um, listed in the record in 1 Chronicles 5 and verse 8. And they're born of mothers that were not given the names to. So he has number 11, Ibhar, whom Yahweh chooses. He has Elishema, or another name that this boy also has is Elishua, my God has he heard, or whom my God hears. And then he has Elifelet, God is deliverance, or God is salvation. He has his 14th son named Noga, brightness, shining, or splendor. He has his 15th son, Nepheg, means to spring forth. He has his 16th son, Japhia, shining. 
And then number 17, Elishama, my God has heard. His 18th son from the record in 1 Chronicles is Elida, or he also goes by the name Belida. God knows, or who God cares for. And then finally, he has his 19th son, Eliphalet, God is deliverance. And yes, he has two sons by the same name. Well, what a family dynamic. Multiple wives, we might say multiple complications. At least eight wives are named with multiple sons, 19 that are named. One daughter, Tamar, plus 10 concubines. He has, we know that from 2 Samuel 15, verse 16, he has 10 concubines as well. Each mum perhaps thinking, maybe my son will inherit the kingdom. Imagine the rivalry, the quest for attention from a very busy father. Each mother looking out for what was best for their own child. Each mother coming from a very different family background. Now if you just think about it, Abigail, for example, we know, coming from an abusive, self-centered, perhaps even alcoholic husband, who the Bible describes as a fool. Nonetheless, in the scriptural record, she was a wonderful woman and very wise, a worthy companion for David. And perhaps she might have been the steady hand who kept the family from complete chaos. We talked about Michael, the daughter of Saul, lacking any understanding in spiritual matters, unable to appreciate the love that David had for God when he brought the ark back to Jerusalem. A marriage foisted on David by Saul as a reward for his military services. But Saul, knowing Michael's character, thought she would be a trap for David. Such was the character of this girl. And then we have Maacah, the mother of Absalom and Tamar. David's only foreign wife. A woman with a very worldly background. She was schooled in the religion of Geshur. As the daughter of King Telmai, she would no doubt have been a very strategic marriage for David, giving him his peace that he needed on his northeastern border region. The kingdom of Geshur is felt to have occupied the area just northeast of the Sea of Galilee. We would know that area today probably more closely associated with the Golan Heights, uh, reaching up into what is now modern-day Syria. Uh, Archaeologists believe, they've done a lot of digging up in that area, and they believe that the main religion of that area was the moon god, who takes the form of a bull. Israel, in the days of Joshua, tried to conquer this particular region for the tribe of Manasseh, but they couldn't do it. They were unsuccessful in taking this particular region. David himself also fought against the kingdom of Geshur. And this is perhaps where and why the alliance occurred with this daughter of the king of Geshur. 
And we also know that Absalom felt a kinship and a sense of safety with this place. As this is where he's going to flee to when he murders his half-brother. Absalom finds safety with his grandfather, the king of Geshur. The family ties that his mother had with that region and to her father, King Talmai, gave Absalom a sense he would be protected there. Perhaps maybe with kindred spirits who would have loved to see the throne of David overturned and a grandson of King Talmai, a Geshurite, take the throne of Israel. Princess Maaka also had something none of the other wives or concubines had. She may not have had the firstborn, that belonged to Ahinoam, but she had the most beautiful son. In fact, in 2 Samuel 14, verse 25, we are told that Absalom had no blemish. Features, no doubt, that he would have received from his mother, Maacah, and also his father, David. And this one we will look up, and this was said of David. This is in 1 Samuel 16 and verse 12. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 12, and I'll read from the net version here, because there's going to be a lot of emphasis as we go through the record of Absalom of his good looks. And this was something that certainly attracted people to him. And we see that this was also a feature of his father. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, So Jesse had him brought in. Now he was ruddy with attractive eyes and a handsome appearance. The Lord said, Go and anoint him. This is the one. And so it was a feature of David and perhaps Maacah herself because two of the most beautiful characters in the record, Absalom and Tamar from David and Maacah. Absalom had natural features that attracted people to him. It's something that uh, I can't relate to, but they say that people with striking good looks end up with other problems sometimes attracting the wrong crowds for the wrong reasons. They themselves are more subject to vanity, being puffed up in their appearances. And sometimes it's helped along by others who constantly remind them of their good looks. Oh, you're so good looking. In some ways then, it can become a curse rather than a blessing. And this is often the case with people that are drawn in our society today to celebrity, to those with dashing good looks and features. Amnon did not seem to attract the same kind of attention. Something Absalom really never had to work very hard to get. The sons of David also, as princes, just to give a little bit more background of what Absalom would have experienced, enjoyed a very privileged life, we find. The princes of Israel, David's boys, enjoyed a very privileged life. In the record, as you read through the record, you actually wonder what they did for a living. What did they do with their time? They had servants at their beck and call. 
Even Absalom had servants that sheared his sheep. When we consider Amnon, the firstborn, we know he's got a so-called friend named Jonadab. And Jonadab, the way he works with Amnon and the way he appeals to him is as a friend, he, he talks about the special status that Amnon has. He says, Amnon, you're the king's son. Why are you distressed? As if a king's son should never be depressed or sad. Such was the life of a prince. And actually, we know that he had servants, and from the record, we're going to see this shortly in 2 Samuel 13, that his servants would even stand by while he raped his sister. Absalom, we know he had his own sheep shears to do the work with his own livestock, and he had servants dedicated to his every command. They would even commit murder for him. Adonijah, his other boy, he had no trouble rounding up chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him to declare his intention to be king. The life of privilege that these boys experienced seemed to create a sense of entitlement. It actually gave them a feeling of superiority. It gave them the opportunity to get involved in political intrigue, to desire other things, to become involved in the lives of others. And this was something, brothers and sisters and friends, that plagued Israel as well. In Ezekiel chapter 16 and verse 49, this was actually one of the indicators of the problem that Israel had. And it is a problem that plagues the world to this day and can plague us too, brothers and sisters. You know, with this COVID, we're restricted within our home environments. And perhaps there could be a feeling of self-dependency or self-containment within our home environments. There's a warning for us in Ezekiel 16 and verse 49. It says, and the warning was to Israel, but it likens Israel to her sister Sodom. And this is one of the problems she had. And this seemed to be the problem that David had with, within the kingdom with his boys. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. All these factors combined to make Absalom the man he was. Yet there was one more very important event that would impact and shape his life. In this case, not in a good way. It had to do with the actions of his father, David. We sometimes have the expression that we use, like father, like son. That is, of course, not always a truism. But in the case of, Abraham, of Absalom, he saw what his father did as a way for him to do what he wanted to do, to seize what was not his, even the kingdom. He had watched or been told by others of all that had transpired with his father's sin with Bathsheba. How David saw something that he greatly desired, something that was not his, 
but was another man's. But as a king, you can desire and you can have and murder may be a way for you to achieve it if that becomes necessary. Not just Absalom, but all David's wives and children would have known what was done. All Israel knew. And as a consequence for the sin that David committed in secret with Bathsheba, God pronounced on David through Nathan the prophet the sentence that was to cause tremendous turmoil and upheaval in David's family. A rupture in the family so great that David would lose four of his sons, three to violent death. For the sin that David thought was done in secret, here's the Lord's judgment. We'll read from 2 Samuel 12, verses 10 and 11, and we've actually put this on the slide. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will make thy wives I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. And that word neighbor there in the Hebrew means friend or companion. The punishment decreed on David demonstrated that God is righteous, even though he was to forgive David, David would suffer the consequences. Justice would be performed by God. His righteousness was declared, and the incredible faith of David, because we're going to be talking about the sin of David a bit here, never forget the incredible faith that David had. It caused David, if you just look down to verse 12 in your, in your Bibles, you'll see that David said, I have sinned against Yahweh. So David recognized that. That's the faith of that man. Nonetheless, for the sin committed, we're going to call these the principles of consequence are now going to follow. And some of these are this. The first one, what we do affects others. Our family. It can even affect the ecclesia. Note too, the sin of adultery was against God. God did not make David's sons do the evil that they did. Nor were they held accountable for what David did. They were responsible for their own actions. But what God does show David is that by his sin, he gave license for others to follow. And God would allow that evil to manifest itself in David's house. Secondly, God is involved in the punishment. Such was the faith of David that he saw God's involvement as a good thing because he viewed the Lord as a merciful God. That was the way David thought. We may be forgiven, but the consequences remain because God is right in condemning sin. Thirdly, we also learn we are not immune to what happens to others. Never think that can't possibly happen to me or my family. David would experience what he witnessed happen to others. You will recall those words spoken to Saul in 1 Samuel 15 and verse 28. And I would put that right beside that word neighbor in my verse 11. 
In 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, Saul, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And those words haunted Saul his whole life. These words would now fall hard on David's ears. His friend, his companion, his son would do these things before his eyes. This punishment for the sin that David committed did not take long to go into effect. The first offspring to experience the consequence of David's sin was the son that was born to Bathsheba and David, and the child died. And so the consequences begin. And this pattern of David's sin that Nathan called the doing of evil, you'll notice that in 2 Samuel 12, verse 9, we have that highlighted on the bottom of the slide. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil? It's the doing of evil that was set about uh, by David in his sight. And Nathan correctly calls this out, this, this pattern And it's going to repeat itself again and again. As David did, so did his boys. The pronouncement of the Lord against David had devastating consequences. As the sword begins to devour his family. The pattern of the doing of evil that David did would be similarly repeated by at least three of the boys closest to the line of succession to the throne. We call these these principles of consequence. These, they happen in rapid succession. We have the idea of secrecy. Now, if you've got your Bibles there, just take a look at 2 Samuel 12. And we're going to go through this very quickly, but 2 Samuel chapter 12. And you can highlight this as related to what David did. And this pattern will repeat itself with Amnon, with Absalom, with Adonijah. So it starts off with secrecy. Sin likes darkness. It happens out of sight. And it gives the false sense this sin can be gotten away with. Even God hasn't seen it. And if you look at 2 Samuel 12, 12, that's exactly what Nathan picks out to David. You thought you did this in secrecy. The second aspect of this consequence, of, of this, this succession of sin leads to the sight. Unchecked desires arise from the lusting of the eyes. And we see that in 2 Samuel 11, verse 2, as David saw Bathsheba and he lusted after her. The third aspect is the idea of scent. It's the actual opportunity of sin. You create an opportunity for sin. In 2 Samuel 11, verses 3 and 4, what did David do? He sent for her. And then the sin itself. The desire is fulfilled. The taking or doing of what was desired is now accomplished. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 4, verse 15, because we know there's the death of Uriah that's going to follow, and then verse 17, all show the sin in its fulfillment, the actions taken. And then we have what's called suspension. What we mean by that is, since justice or judgment doesn't happen immediately, there's a sense that we get, and David got, and his boys get, that they got away with the sin. 
We see that in 2 Samuel 11, verse 27. There's a sense that God didn't do anything about this. May have gotten away with it. And then finally, we have the idea of suffering. Ultimately, though, the consequences for sinful actions are realized. And in the case of David, heartache and pain and a family divided. And for the other boys, violent deaths. And this pattern, brothers and sisters, will repeat itself. We see in Absalom and Adonijah, we could barely fit in the scriptures that relate to Absalom. It was so, there's so many that relate to this exact same pattern that we see here. James 1 and verse 15 describes this pattern. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin when it is finished brings forth death. This pattern is called the doing of evil. Secrecy. Things are hidden. The sight, the lust of our eyes. Sent, we make an opportunity for sin. We make an occasion for it. We do the sin itself, the committing of the act of sin itself. Suspension, justice is delayed. We got away with it. But finally, suffering. Bearing the consequences for our sins. Bearing the consequences are unavoidable. Look at the way Absalom is introduced to us in the record. Right after the record of David's sin with Bathsheba, which, by the way, would have taken place over at least a year in time, perhaps longer. So a fair bit of time would have taken place between the events of chapter 12 and the start of 2 Samuel 13. But look what we read in verse 1. And it came to pass after this. That Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Right after this horrendous sin recorded in chapter 12, the record wants us to see a connection between what David had done to the, what David had done to the events that are about to transpire in 2 Samuel 13. We are now introduced to David's two boys. And it came to pass... After this. And so we read of Amnon's lust for his half sister. So in 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 and 2, and it came to pass after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a fair sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. And Amnon was so vexed that he fell sick for his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and Amnon thought it hard for him to do anything to her. Tamar, you notice from the record, brothers, is not even described as David's daughter. But she's rather Absalom's sister. And we see this emphasized again in verse 4. And Amnon said unto him, I love Tamar, my brother, Absalom's sister. Amnon knows he can't have what he wants. And he makes himself physically sick over it. Such was the lust he had towards Tamar. But wouldn't you know it, he has a friend named Jonadab, David's nephew, and he's a snake of a man. Verse 3 says, Jonadab was a very subtle man. And he hatches a plan for Amnon to get what he wanted. All Amnon has to do is lie to his father David. To fake that he is sick, and then David will agree to your sister to come and look after you. Send for your sister to come to you like David had his servants do by summoning 
Bathsheba. The plan works. David, thinking Amnon is sick, does as he requests. And he sends Tamar to look after her brother. And the record wants us to see the sin for what it was. Look at the emphasis that is placed on Amnon's family relationship with Tamar. Verse 5. Jonadab tells Amnon to say, My sister Tamar. Verse 6. Let my sister Tamar come. Verse 7. David tells Tamar to go to her brother Amnon's house. Verse 8. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house. Verse 10. She brought the cake she made to Amnon her brother. Verse 11. Amnon says, come lie with me, my sister. Verse 12. And Tamar rightly answers, no, my brother. The record emphasizes, and again and again, this is your sister. Stop. Think about what you're doing. And it's interesting, in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 3, David was told before he sinned with Bathsheba, She's Uriah's wife. Such was the mercy of God. And Tamar pleads with Amnon, such wickedness as this should not be done in Israel. And you really feel for this young girl, caught up in this ugly situation. Amnon would not be reasoned with. Lust had so filled his mind, he would not be dissuaded from what his mind desired. Verse 14. Howbeit he would not listen unto her voice, but being stronger than she, forced her, and he lay with her. And after committing this horrendous act, he now completely changes his attitude towards her. Tamar's righteous attitude has turned him against her, and he now hates her more than the love that he had for her in the beginning. It's absolutely incredible. But such is the way of sin. People who are spiritually weak despise being told what they are doing is wrong. We want proof of that in our readings, not long ago. Amos 5 verse 10. Amos 5 verse 10, reading from the net. The Israelites hate anyone who arbitrates at the city gate. They despise anyone who speaks honestly. You think about that. The last time somebody told you you were doing wrong, what did you think? Spiritually weak People despise being told they are wrong. And perhaps we've all experienced that in our own lives. Well, Tamar is then put outside the room by his servant, and the door is bolted after her. Tamar goes away in great sorrow and anguish, putting ashes on her head and rending her royal garment. And Absalom, her brother, now sees her. He instantly suspects Amnon. Verse 20. Now this is the first time we're introduced. We ever hear Absalom speak. And Absalom, her brother, said unto her, Hath Amnon thy brother been with thee? But hold now thy peace, my sister. He is thy brother. Regard not this thing. So Tamar remained desolate. And that means to be astonished. To be put in silence, Jacinia says. She was put in silence. Astonished. In her brother Absalom's house. That's where she was going to stay. What a strange thing to say. Now we know that Absalom would have had a love for his sister because he actually names one of his daughters after her. But what a strange thing to say. It seems to be completely void of any empathy. 
And these are the very first words in scriptures we ever hear Absalom speak. The net version reads for verse 20, Her brother Absalom said in her, Was Amnon your brother with you? Now be quiet, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take it too seriously. What a terrible thing to say. Tamar, now shamed and devastated after being treated with such contempt, lives in the house of her brother Absalom. When David learns of what has happened, verse 21, he was very wroth, but he never took action. And here we start to see what the sin of Bathsheba is now affecting his ability to judge. David sees what Amnon did as perhaps not that far away from what he did when he took another man's wife, when he took something that he shouldn't have. And David would have reflected on the mercy of, that God had showed to him. Whatever the motivation, the result is David does nothing. David's hesitation and inaction after Amnon's wickedness towards Tamar would prove to be a fatal mistake. Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 11, we read, Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. The house of the kingdom of David watched Adonijah watched, Ahithophel watched, Joab watched, and so did Absalom. No justice seemed to take place. Amnon doesn't flee anywhere. He becomes maybe emboldened in a sense that he got away with it. Brothers and sisters, we too can fall victim to the same type of thinking that Amnon and later Absalom and Adonijah are going to display. The Lord himself warns about this. So we can never think, well, these are evil characters. It could never happen to me. Take a look at Matthew 24 and verse 48. Matthew 24, verse 48. But and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and in an hour he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we follow this attitude of mine, and we let it set in, that our Lord is delayed, or his coming is a way off, or there's no judgment or justice for any acts that we've done, our behavior changes. It happened to Israel. Well, what should have happened to David? Well, we know from Leviticus 20 and verse 17, Absalom should be, or Amnon should have been put away. Leviticus is very clear not to have your sister. And he did that. And so we read in Leviticus 20 and 17 what the punishment should have been for that boy. Well, now David has a problem. David has a house divided. The Lord himself says, but he knowing their thoughts said unto them, every kingdom against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against itself falleth. David's kingdom is in turmoil. He's got a house divided. And so Absalom plots for two years 
to kill his brother Amnon for what he did to his sister. Two years he waits before he takes action. David has a house divided. So what can we learn so far from this morning, brothers and sisters? Well, we learn when we go against God's commandments, we need to understand clearly we are actually going against God himself. What we do affects not only ourselves, but our family, as well as our ecclesial family. We bear the name of Christ. As parents, we bear a massive responsibility to set a good example. And thirdly, if we do not take action against wrong or evil, it can spread and develop into a mindset for ourselves and for others around us, hey, I can get away with this. And so Absalom starts to think, after what's happened, maybe he can get away with this as well. And he plans for the greatest of all his evil deeds, the stealing of the kingdom from his father David. And God willing, that will be the subject of our next class.